Good evening, everyone. Wow. Okay, now we're going to do this again. Good evening, everyone. All right, here's the question of the evening. How many of you are here at the Rothko Chapel for the first time? Raise your hand. Keep those hands up. Now, I want everybody who isn't hand-raising to look very carefully at your neighbor. And after the program's over, we're going to have a reception on the plaza. And part of why we do this is to build community. I mean, you may not know that your neighbor, literally next door to you at your house where you live, is here tonight, and you didn't know you shared the same interest. So part of what we try to do through these events is to build a community, a lattice of people that have like concerns, like issues. So welcome, whether it's the first time or the hundredth time, welcome to the Rothko Chapel. Now we have a few ground rules. It's nothing like being in a sacred space and we start out with a lot of negatives. Thou shalt not. But I'm gonna do it a little different way. I'm gonna do the four Ps. Phones, photos, pictures, and presents. All right, we try to create a place that's as much technology free as we can be. I'm telling you, I know some of you are gonna go through withdrawals. It's gonna to start to hurt over the next hour and a half. But the reason we do that, I think is the most important, is presence. Number one, to be present with each other and to disconnect for just a while so you can be in community together. Also to be in presence with our speakers and to be in presence of this place, this sacred space that was built in 1971 as a place of gathering, a place for exploration, a place for celebration, a time to weep and a time to mourn, and partially by turning off those phones for a minute, not taking pictures, we're able to be here together in community and in spirit together. Uh, I will say this, we're not totally technology free because we do have a photographer. We do videotape this so you can get it on the web post event, okay? But that would be really great if you could do that. My other job tonight is to give a few thanks and I wanna thank my colleagues, Ashley Clemmer and Kelly Johnson in particular because they work on our program side that help curate these type of programs. So I see Ashley here. I don't know where Kelly may be in the back. Ashley, could you and Kelly stand and let's just give them a round of applause if you would. <clears throat> we also have at the chapel uh, another group of very important uh, people that help us day in and day out. We have uh, two groups of people called the Chapel Hosts and the Chapel Guild. So when you came in tonight, you were greeted, you see folks around here, they have, they're, they're the really good folks, because I always forget my name badge, but they have their name tags, and uh, they really help us. And, and if you're ever interested in volunteering at the Rothko Chapel, we have a guild that really helps with day in and day out, welcoming guests, uh, being in the chapel, doing guided tours. Uh, so they're here too. So let's just give them a big round of applause for the work they do day in and out. I also want to lift up uh, Holly and Joshua Hudley, who helped underwrite tonight's program. If we could give them a big round of applause. Thank you, Holly. Thanks for all your support. And also, uh, Dominique Blask and Zamira Rodriguez tonight are our American Sign Language interpreters. And it's just great to have them to continue to involve as many people as we can in the life of the chapel. 
thank you for sharing your gifts with us this evening. We really appreciate it. So let me tell you a little bit about the context for tonight's uh, gathering. Two years ago or so, we started a series called The Concept of the Divine with a very simple proposition and question. That is, how could we probe more deeply into how our individual and collective understandings of the divine in its many forms and however understood impact our notion of the sacred, our spirituality, and our deepest life commitments? Our first speaker in the fall of 2016 is a well-known person in town, Dr. Brene Brown, who is a professor of sociology, I mean, professor of social work at the University of Houston. As the series has unfolded, we've had poets, we had a Muslim feminist scholar, an activist, we had two beloved clergy in this city, Rabbi Karf and Archbishop Fiorenza, who have spent decades working on social justice issues in this city, and then in December, we had Suzanne Benali, who is a Navajo leader and tribal teacher, who was here that taught us and, and shared her concept of the divine. Now, our series will end, and I really hope you'll be able to come on April 22nd. We're going to have with us Jerry Woodfield. Uh, Jerry worked with NASA for many years. He's an engineer, and he worked, worked on the Apollo Moon Program spacecraft warming, warning system. And what is gonna be very interesting is to hear from Jerry as a NASA employee, as an engineer, somebody deeply ingrained in the space program, how that impacted his understanding and engagement with the divine. So I hope you'll be here on uh, April the 22nd. So with that as background, I wanna to turn to tonight's program and the context. All too often, we are told that certain things are antithetical to one another and have irreconcilable differences that simply cannot be bridged. For example, religion versus science, business versus the environment, rural versus urban, and I'm sure you could add to the list. Thankfully though, there are those amongst us who are ready to debunk this myth of separation and who are in fact ready to find connections, common principles, and mutuality that foster a heightened sense of curiosity and openness to cross-sector learning and engagement. Tonight, we're very fortunate to have with us such a person in the sacred place of di dialogue and inquiry. Ilia Delio is a Franciscan sister of Washington, D.C., an American theologian who specializes in the area of science and religion with interest in evolution, physics, neuroscience, and the import of these for theology. Sister Ilya currently holds a Josephine C. Conley Endowed Chair in Theology at Villanova University and is the author of 17 books, and those are listed in your program tonight, so I'm going to skip that to get, get right to the heart of the matter. Um, she is also somebody, as I learned over dinner tonight, who's just darn funny and uh, just brings a, a life that oftentimes we think of another dichotomy humor and religion. Oh, those can't go together. Well, you're doing a great job, and I'm, we're really looking forward to having you here with us this evening. Following Sister Ilya's talk, uh, Bill Curley will join her on the stage here for a time of conversation. Uh, Bill is a psychological and spiritual teacher using Jungian insights to help achieve personal and relational growth. In addition to his private practice as a counselor and spiritual director, uh, Bill has been an instructor at Baylor College of Medicine where he has taught at-risk heart patients the beliefs and behaviors necessary to
to enhance and prolong their lives. Uh, really great. Bill is a friend of the chapel. He's been at St. Paul Methodist for a number of years. So Bill, thank you for being with us tonight. Now, one logistical note, in your program, you'll find a, you should find a little note card. And what we're gonna do, instead of having open mic kind of Q&A, if anywhere during the presentation, something comes to your mind, you have a question or a thought you have, just fill it out on the card and pass it to the outside aisles and people will come by and pick those up periodically, can sort them and then slip them to Bill through the conversation. So with that, welcome to the Rothko Chapel. We look forward to the conversation. Ilya, it's all yours. Thank you. Well, good evening. It's, um, thank you for coming. It's great to be here in Houston um, and to be able to share some time with you on this question of the divine. I was asked to speak uh, from a personal perspective on the divine, and I thought, oh, really? Uh, do you really want to hear this? But I'm about to share it with you anyway, so. <laughs> um, you know, I grew up, uh, I, I've, I'm Italian-American descent, Sicilian on one side, so, you know, if you don't like what I say, really, I'll see you afterwards. <laughs> um, <laughs> and from New Jersey, close to New York. I grew up uh, in a very kind of closed neighborhood, you know, where everyone was Italian-American except for my next-door neighbor who was Scottish Protestant, and I thought that was the coolest thing. Uh, so I thought God was Italian, quite honestly, for many years. Um, and I grew up as a Sunday Catholic, you know, like you go to church and it was very, very routine. I, I was sent to Catholic school, grammar school, because that's what a good Italian Catholic-American family does. Um, but I, I can't say that there was anything, you know, in that early process of God in my life other than it was mechanized. You know, it was something that we did, it was genetically wired into us. Uh, but I, I was always sort of fascinated by the mystery of God. Like, I used to love actually Catholic devotions to St. Anthony. I didn't understand anything they were talking about but I loved all the smoke, truthfully, from the incense. Uh, <laughs> it was, there was something like mysterious about it all. So anyway, I, you know, my parents were very set, like you must go to Catholic school. So I, you know, I obeyed and all this kind of stuff. High school, I was sent to a Catholic high school with Ukrainian nuns. So needless to say, I was rebellious. You know, and I spent most of my high school years wondering like what trouble I could actually make without getting expelled. Um, so it is funny that I'm a, I'm a nun today, really. I was the last, last person that they ever thought was prime material for this job. Um, you know, my sense of God, I have to tell you, if I were to describe myself, I would say I am evolution become conscious of itself. And by, by that, I could really look back in my life and see this evolution of the divine in my own life. Um, I was always fascinated by science. I love science, truthfully. It's still a great love in my life. And so as, a, as an undergraduate, I majored in biology and then went on for a master's in biology, um, biology, neurobiology, and then went on for a PhD in pharmacology because I really thought that science was the path to truth, and I thought religion was just something you do on Sunday. You know, you kind of fill in the, the gaps there. I really didn't know what religion was about, quite honestly. I knew what science was about. 
And science, it was just, I mean, I was right at the cusp where neuroscience was coming into its own as a field. Uh, my particular area of research was in spinal cord physiology. So, um, you know, not to get technical, but I was in motor neuron neuropathies, uh, especially Lou Gehrig's disease was one area that I was working on. And I really felt like if I pursue this, I could, you know, eventually make a breakthrough and then win the Nobel Prize and then retire. And, um, but science is itself its own type of spirituality, right? You're, you're, you're lured by the questions and by the pursuit of, you know, probing. Uh, and it's very routine, right? It's hard work, day after day, experiment after experiment. Those of you in science know that it's and a lot of fruitless results oftentimes. But in the meantime, I became, I came across the life of Thomas Merton. I had never heard of Thomas Merton. I had never heard of monks or contemplative life. And I read this biography and, and this sort of, it was actually a, a book review in Time Magazine. I said, I've got to read this book. So I went out, I purchased the book, I stayed up all night and read the life of Thomas Merton. I said, that's it, that's what I want to do. I want to be like Merton. I want to leave this world and I want to go to the desert and I want to live for Christ. Well, I couldn't tell my lab you know, research partners, hey, guess what? I had an enlightenment. Um, so I started visiting on the side a group of discalced Carmelite nuns in Sugarloaf, Pennsylvania. Now, Carmelites were monks, uh, contemplatives from ancient days that were reformed in the 16th century by Teresa of Avila. So she was a pretty au courant woman in her own time. She was really amazing. Um, uh, they were shoeless, so very, very hard way of life. So let me tell you that I was very, very traditional when it came to religion. I don't know where it came from, you know, something got wired into me, but when I thought of religious life, I thought like Merton, you have to leave the world, you have to live this radically ascetic life, you know, so I started sleeping on the floor and on a rock and all this stuff, I'm like, my back was killing me. I'm like, this is a little crazy, but I'm sure I'll get used to it. Um, and, you know, I was, I was in the lab getting this degree in pharmacology and I was visiting the Carmelites and really becoming more and more attracted to this life of contemplative prayer. So when I came to finish my degree in pharmacology, I actually landed a, PhD, a postdoc at Johns Hopkins, and now I was torn between Hopkins and the monastery. And I made an option for the monastery, and all my science colleagues really thought I either had a nervous breakdown or I met someone, you know, while I was in Europe, and you know, they thought, what happened to her? She really lost her mind entirely. Um, I entered the monastery, and why I want to tell you this is because the way our conception of the divine changes depends on our openness and willingness to take up the adventures and the invitations of life itself. So I took up these invitations that were coming along my way, and I'm, oh, I've always been something of an adventure person. I love like fast cars, I love parachute, you know, um, I'm the kind that will probably go on a bungee jump, you know, in New Zealand. So um, I took up this adventure of the monastic life. I left science behind, and it was very difficult because I love science. And when I crossed the threshold into the monastery, I had to actually shut the door on science. 
There was, I could not talk about it in the monastery. Uh, I could not discuss anything about science. So I really had to sort of die to that self. And that was my own sort of metamorphosis, a type of conversion, that I went through a, a lot of ambivalence, like what am I doing and why am I doing this? And yet this pull of the divine, this gravitational pull of this mystery that we name as God was still very strong. So uh, to make a long story short, the monastery was a lot of hard work, truthfully, and so the ideal of living all for God quickly distilled into like about seven hours of manual labor and five hours of long, silent prayer. And so every day I'd wake up like, you know, like a little bit comatose, you know, at morning prayer. Then we'd be working in the bakery. We grew our own food, you know. I thought, I must be out of my mind. The only thing I ever did was push a scalpel, you know. Now I'm like lifting pounds of flour. And so um, luckily the monastery was across the street from an inactive volcano. And one of my greatest (laughs) prayers was that that volcano would actually become alive and this would solve my problems. But then I would, uh, you know, sometimes I'd be out, we had this big garden in the back and it was like, you know, I mean, I remember spending three hours one, one evening planting peas and they were like, what are you doing out there? And I thought, well, I likened it to the Shawshank Redemption. You know, I was trying to d- build a tunnel that I could maybe find my way to the other side. Anyway, I eventually got the courage to ask for a leave of absence, and I did, and I was sent to a group, uh, I went back to research at at Rutgers University. So I went back to a a position in neurotoxicology, but by this time, I had a habit, you know, like a full, I wore a full-length habit. And I walked into the lab, and they were like, (laughs) you know, like, are you okay, you know? Why are you dressed like that? So, you know, it was very hard. I was living like double lives. And of course, I I was now living with a group of German Franciscan sisters, and they were very, very sweet women. But they hadn't a clue. So every night they would ask me, well, how are your rats? And I thought, a whole life of asking, how are your rats doing? This isn't gonna work either. You know, so I had to go through, you know, again, another invitation. What do you want to do with your life? So I didn't know, for me, giving my life over to this gospel way of life seemed to be the life. Why, why did I have to have another job, you know, to add on? So I asked a lot of questions uh, as I began to um, live with the Franciscans. I really liked the Franciscans. And so um, all this to say is how I got to theology is because I probably drove my novice director to a nervous breakdown. And uh, they, she was sent out to the Midwest and, and they said, <laughs> We don't know what to do with you, so we're gonna send you to school since you seem to do that well. So I did, I went to school and I studied at Fordham University and I studied with a fabulous person by the name of Ewart Cousins. Ewart was the, one of the ones who devised the classics of Western spirituality, the world's, he was into world spirituality, process theology, he was a Bonaventurian uh, scholar, a medieval philosopher by training. So, Studying with Europe was like being on an etch-a-sketch. So you would go from the 5th century to the 12th century to the 20th century, back to the 12th century. So you couldn't be a linear thinker with him. So he was right up my alley. And that's, I studied, I began to work uh, on studying Bonaventure, a Franciscan theologian from the 13th century. It was Bonaventure who began to open up this question of God for me in a radically new way. Um, First of all, Franciscans are very earth-centered, very creation-centered. And Bonaventure had this kind of broad-mindedness of of the Christ as 
the whole cosmos, you know, and therefore this, this idea of a cosmic Christology began to emerge. And this is something that's still very foreign to many people. You know, when they use the word cosmic Christology, like, what? You know, sounds like Casper the ghost marrying Jesus or something, you know. <laughs> And uh, we don't have a sense of it, right? Because we've never talked about, uh, you know, divinity and creation in the same breath. It's like, as, as if these two things, like science and religion don't belong together, God and world don't belong together. And it's so crazy how we've come to this kind of artificial divide between these things that are really so unified. So um, from Bonaventure, I began, actually, I, in my own doctoral work, uh, Ewart was a Teilhardian scholar as well, and so the Jesuit paleontologist Teilhard de Jardin began to factor in my own work on cosmic Christology. Now, Teilhard de Jardin was also, like Bonaventure, a very broad thinker. First of all, he was a trained scientist, a paleontologist, who spent many years in China digging up old bones. But Teilhard felt that there was something at the heart of matter that's more than mere matter. And his own, you know, in a sense, his Ignatian spirituality, this, this kind of his own immersion in this mystery of God's love, um, coupled with his scientific training, caused him to begin to bring together evolution and Christianity, and actually evolution and religion in the broadest sense. And he began writing in the, in the actually in world, around World War I into the 20s and 30s. But you know, things like, uh, Taylor began to realize a lot of the stuff we have inherited, certainly from the Christian side, like original sin. As Taylor had said, seriously? You know, really? It's, um, how can we have one couple responsible for a whole you know, uh, uh, defect? And are we defective? That's the whole point <laughs> if we're in evolution. And so Teilhard began to write, and of course it didn't go well. You know, when you start, uh, when you start turning over that apple cart of things. Uh, so he got, the, uh, he got the phone call, first from his Jesuit superior saying, Pierre, do not write anymore, okay? This is really upsetting. And then it was the Pope who said, Nix, you know. No, we're not publishing anything. So all of Teilhard's writings were never published in his lifetime. He never saw one iota of his thought published. Um, and yet, what keeps someone like Teilhard working? There's something about him, I could say, that I resonate with this, this gravity of the divine love, you know, that keeps pulling us onward in the pursuit of this tremendous mystery that we're immersed in. And, and what Teilhard saw is this mystery is at the heart of our lives, is at the heart of our world. And so Teilhard began to see that the whole that we call the material creation is actually imbued with divine love. And so he began to speak of this creation as, we can say, a converging process, that something is happening here in this place of home we call the universe that's more than just physics and more than just chemistry and more than just biology. While all these things are fascinating in themselves, there's a ground to all this. In other words, evolution itself sort of defies the second law of thermodynamics. Things should be falling apart, really, if we, if we follow these physical laws. But they don't. They're actually getting more complex. They're complexifying. Um, and so it was really Teilhard that began to open me up to a new sense of, of the divine or God. Now, I have to tell you that I went to, I went to start teaching in Washington, D.C. as a theologian in 1997. 
And I still wore a habit then, I have to tell you. I was, I was like married to the habit. I mean, I loved, I loved the habit. And uh, everyone was looking at me like, she's really a nice person. She has some things to say, like, you know, she's dressed kind of funny. Uh, so no one would talk to me. And I couldn't understand what the problem was. Um, so, you know, I had, to, I had to work through because I was still tied to some old aspects of religion and I was still tied to what I thought defined, uh, say, a religious sister, you know, or what defined a Catholic, and I wasn't really willing to relinquish them too readily, you know, and I was coming up against a wider, I was being challenged by a wider perspective on the divine mystery, I was being challenged by, you know, the inclusion of, of various religions in the way I thought about God, and I was like, yeah, I'm open to this, but wait a minute, <clears throat> you know, I'm still a Catholic, I'm a Franciscan sister, and I like my habit, and I'm not taking it off, so I don't care what you think. So, <clears throat> so I was teaching in a Catholic seminary in Washington, and, and that was good, but you know, I was teaching Franciscan theology, and while I love Francis of Assisi, truthfully, I really do, but after nine, about, yeah, by the ninth year, I was like, okay, brother, son, sister, moon, you know, we've got to move on now. And um, <clears throat> I, I was always involved in science and religion throughout my whole theological career. I was on AAAS, you know, the Dozer Board on Science, Ethics, and Theology. I was on the Templeton uh, Metanexus Board in Philadelphia. So I was being engaging with scientists and with religion scholars on this whole area of science and religion. In fact, my first teaching job was at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. And they wanted me to teach science and religion. I thought, hey, I have two doctorates, one in science, one in religion, what's the problem? When I realized there's an immense amount of material in this area. And so we've had a lot of scholarship in science and religion, but we've had very little synthesis. <clears throat> we know a lot about science, we know a lot about religion, and we can tell you maybe the points of contact between them. But we haven't had a vision a paradigm, and that's where Teilhard really rose up for me. It's not that he was just saying, okay, now evolution and Christianity actually can be compatible. He had a vision for where this might go, even in terms of world religions. And that is what has, in the past and still does today, has really gravitated me. As I began to reflect on a vision of not a static God, not an Italian-American God who's hanging out in a place called heaven, you know, and waiting that, you know, I get things right and so I, we can go together. You know, we have these ideas on God, like, <clears throat> like God's up there, because people have, like, God's up there, we're here, we have to do good, avoid evil, be nice to your neighbor, say thank you, you know, uh, so that we can go to heaven. And do what? What do, we, what do we plan to do there since we're only here for 60, well, 80, 90 years and heaven's going to be, well, eternal as far as we know. I mean, unless there's a rebirth someplace in some other cosmos. <clears throat> so, you know, this began to not make so much sense to my scientific brain, all right? And I'm going, okay, yeah, mm, well, <clears throat> so I began to realize, oh, well, one of our problems with heaven and God is, first of all, we have them in the wedding cake universe, which is the medieval cosmos, which is where most of our religion is pretty much stuck in old cosmology. 
Now, not that that's bad, but it is bad because we don't live in that cosmos. We live in a very dynamic cosmos. So we, first of all, you know, I think, I think we have, I would not speak, I'm a, I can speak for myself because I've lived through this. I would say a functional schizophrenic religious consciousness, you know, <laughs> if I were to diagnose myself. I lived with that for a long time without getting therapy for it. I had to, you know, basically work my way through it. And that means grappling with these questions. I had to grapple with a God that I knew from my childhood, now with, with this, this sense of God or divinity that was expanding for me, that was opening up. And here, you know, I remember one day sitting in my little apartment in Washington and I let go. I literally just let go of what I thought God sh should be or had to be, and I found myself free. And it was a sense of inner freedom that began to allow me to explore this mystery of God in an unbridled way. You know, not a way that was determined or constrained by what any one tradition was saying, but a way that was deeply resonant with my own soul, with my own inner self. And that has um, been, in a sense, my trajectory for the last, certainly as I've been involved in the religion science synthesis or integration for the past uh, 10 years or so. And what's so amazing is, oh, okay. What is so amazing is I have seen myself grow and as I've grown, God has grown. And that has opened up for me the possibility that, oh, God, can change. Imagine that. Because we have this sense like God is static, right? Because really, we're sort of old-time Aristotelians in some ways. We're definitely quasi-Newtonians. Uh, but we had some idea that God remains fixed while we're in this world of change. And I said, wait a minute. If God is really the ground of my life, I mean, the very beingness of my life, the very breath of my life, and I'm changing. Is God not changing with me? And thanks to Alfred North Whitehead and Teilhard, I can now say yes. And, and the change of God, God doesn't become anything of God. It's actually the godness of God or the divinity of divineness or divineness of divinity that is itself the change. That's the mystery. You see? And so I began to realize that, and I thought, wow, this is a God who's probably going, folks, what are you doing? You know? I mean, I, I always put God back into a New Jersey accent, by the way, so <laughs> don't feel bad here in Houston, you know? But I think God loves adventure. God, God is, for me, God is absolute love. And that Absolute love is absolutely faithful. Here I have to, I, I take up the scripture notion of I am with you always, always. I have known you from before the stars were born. I have loved you, you know, before ever a breath might have been uttered in your name. Uh, and that's the God I have come to know, a God of deep, indwelling love, a God who loves to love. Now, love is not just an emotion. And so I, when I speak of God as love, I don't mean an emotional God who's going to weep when we get things wrong. 
you know, or we just make the wrong decisions or go off track or we just lose sight of ourselves and we get self-centered, selfish. And the God who goes, oh, I think it's a God who's, who, who is truly the love to be there when we fall, when we get blind, when we, we lose our way. And so I think God is not old. I, here I, I side with Meister Eckhart who said, God is the newest thing there is, the youngest thing. And when we are united to God, we become new again. That God, I have now discovered at the heart of an evolutionary universe. We are becoming new because God is ever becoming new. That's what God does. God is ever newness in love. And so I do think that this mystery of the divine is not something hovering over us. I think this mystery of divinity is deep within each one of us and is pulling us. It has pulled you here to gather this evening, this mystery of divine love. It pulls us every moment as we're being drawn into searching for more unity, for more peace, for more compassion, for more forgiveness. That is, that is divinity at work in and through our lives. And this divine love wants to rise up in a more unified way. From the Christian perspective, that is what the symbol of the Christ is, that unity in love. You know, I do a lot of work on technology and transhumanism these days. I teach in this area. And I am, on one hand, I am fascinated by technology, that we can create things that have never, never appeared in the history of the whole universe. Cell phones, now, I won't give away my age, but I actually remembered when the phone was on the wall with the cord, you know, and you could only walk three feet. And when someone said to me, you know, there's gonna be a phone you can carry in your hand one day. I'm like, what? And they said, and it's gonna be a computer you can carry in your hand. I said, no. And you know, and it's getting smaller, faster. It's incredible. We're creating this stuff. We can imagine what has never been imagined. And, but the problem is, we are devoting our lives to our technology. In a sense, we're kind of, the very power and creativity we have, I think, is being thinned out. We're sort of exporting the very inner energies to become something new onto a device. And so I think I would like to kind of realign our energies and sort of make a reclaim for the soul. You know, there's something about every person that has an infinite mysterious depth to it, and I don't want to lose that into a smartphone. Um, but I am saying we have the capacity. We have the capacity to become a new people. We have the capacity to become a new world. We can do it. And because that is what God has gotten, that word God points to that infinite mystery of perfect unified love, compassion, peace, and justice, and that that love is at work in our lives. But we can't allow ourselves to be disembodied, a new platonic dualism, which is what's happening for us. We need to reclaim, and here I, I would go back to Thomas Merton. Look within. You know, I want, I want to make a claim for the soul. You know, that there's, there's something within us. When you're sitting in your room, in your car, or you're just standing for a moment, and there's something deep within us that's shining through, that's saying, I am here, I love you. And that, you know, Merton says, that is the pure glory of God within us. 
beyond delusion, beyond anything we can destroy or touch. And, and Merton says, if we could recognize that pure glory of God in every single person, this world would radiate in a brilliant, in a brilliant light. Um, you see, all that we're searching for is already here. What we must do is awaken to it. And here I would say the role of consciousness which we're finding today from quantum physics, plays a fundamental role in the determination of matter. That same consciousness plays a fundamental role in the shaping of our human energies, our spiritual energies, into a world energy that is, can be something new and beautiful and more whole up ahead. So I'm glad we're here together at the Rothko Chapel, and I think we're going to have our friend Bill Curley come up, and he's going to grill me on everything I just said. So. <laughs> First of all, I want to thank you for being here, uh, and I'm grateful for the entanglement that got us together in the first place. I remember when I first heard you speak, you used those words to describe the synergy field that we are in as expanding, evolving, entangled, and creative, those mm -hmm. four words. And um, you know that you are in a state and in a country where we still push for intelligent design, and um, evolution is a bad word. <clears throat> well, <laughs> how about that? Where are we anyway? No, I'm only kidding. Um, you know, this whole evolution intelligent design bait is a rather unfortunate one that hangs us up. The best of science, in fact, you and I would not be sitting here, you know, having traveled by airplanes with smartphones were it not for evolution, quite honestly. Right. And I take evolution in the very literal sense, coming from the Latin evolvere, meaning to unfold. It's as if life begins, you know, with a small beginning, small, mysterious beginning, we call the Big Bang, and it unfolds. It unfolds in space-time, it unfolds through energy fields, it unfolds as, you know, atoms and particles come together. Did I just ruin your notes? Um, <laughs> and so, you know, is there an intelligence at the heart of this evolution? Well, you know, funny enough, quantum physics today is sort of reawakening the role of mind in matter. So I, I think, you know, I think intelligent design has this idea of information coming from outside, but there is no outside. There's only, you know, here. And so what we are saying is there does seem to be a role for, I would not use the word intelligence, but I would use the word mind or consciousness within the material, what we call the material universe itself. I think the problem of intelligent design is we're still dealing with the backdrop of matter and spirit, or a type, of, um, a type of metaphysics that's not consonant with what physics is telling us today, or, or um, biological evolution. So I, here I would side with modern science, and I think the best of science would uh, fall on the side of evolution. And, um, so would you agree that, that um, human consciousness is creation becoming aware of itself? I do think that consciousness is the name of the game, quite honestly. And, and by saying that, I don't mean to be light about it. We don't even know what consciousness really is, truthfully, but we are getting a better sense 
that uh, there's, a big, there's a great conference coming up, by the way, next November at Villanova on consciousness, nature, and transcendence. So, you know, here's a thing from quantum physics, right? You know, it, th those experiments at the early 20th century that um, we began to realize that, you know, if you do a double slit experiment, we can't tell if something is a particle or a wave unless you have an observer. So we're beginning to realize the significance of an observer-dependent universe, right? So it means that, you know, stuff isn't just objectively out there and we're just passive spectators, you know, as we used to say on, you know, pilgrims making our way through the world, that our active observation, our conscious awareness of something determines what that something is becomes, right? And so on a fundamental level, we're saying consciousness, you know, is, is fundamental to the determination of matter itself. And I think actually there's a, there's a relationship between consciousness and space. Teilhard would say that evolution is the rise of consciousness. That's how he defined evolution. And there's no, something that I think we would have to agree that as our world begins to shrink, as we're becoming more global, we're becoming more planetized, uh, our consciousness has radically shifted. I mean, we know that religion, it goes hand in hand with consciousness. You can trace religion from tribal religions, pre-axial religions, to axial religion, to a new axis of religion that we call a second axial. We're in a new axial age of religious consciousness. So consciousness does change. Consciousness I take as the informational flow across fields uh, that unifies space, and probably unifies space and time. So what was your original question? <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's one way so when, when, humans when, when humans began this conscious evolution, my reading of the data is that in the beginning, um, God was conceived as much more incarnational in things, in matter, Mother Earth, Sister, Son, whatever. And then we lost that and God became this big angry guy in the sky, and the feminine has been just shunted off to the side. Right, yeah. So, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, uh, I think two major things play a, a role here, and they're still very operative today. Patriarchy and politics, the two Ps, right? And they kind of go together. Um, I think in the early, you know, it's early in the, in, from, the history of Christianity, patriarchy inherited, you know, a patriarchal system of governance, a patriarchal system of thought, and then it inherited the patriarchal philosophers, Aristotle and Plato, neither of whom had much, you know, time for women. I mean, Plato's academy said, no women are allowed into my academy, you know, because truthfully, Aristotle would say women are incomplete images of the image of the image of God. So, you know, we know we're just incomplete intellects, incomplete. That was Thomas Aquinas, actually, who said that, but he was a good guy. Anyway, um, <laughs> politics, huge, right? So Arianism in the early church, you know, this idea that uh, to say that God does not become flesh, you know, the, the incarnation from the Christian perspective has been scandalous from the beginning. How can we say that God, divinity, enters in, into materiality? I mean, that's really, wow, that's, that's not good news. All of this to say is, uh, I think what we have done, very simply speaking, is we've institutionalized revelation, we boxed it into religion, uh, then we put a set of narratives and principles around it, and we put it in a formula of pay, pray, and obey, and you'll be okay. You know, 
And therefore, we kind of we kind of collapsed this divine mystery into a very controllable box, you know. And then we had a whole set of patriarchal principles from there that said, if you sin, you know, you're going to hell. If it's a mortal sin, you're definitely going to hell. All right, a venial sin, maybe we can get by. We can negotiate. Um, you know, guilt. Every, everything was guilt-ridden. You know, I ate meat on Friday. Oh, that's it. You're over. Your life is over. You know. So, I mean, we we developed religious mentalities of sin, guilt, judgment, and death. The four the four pillars. So, how do you possibly build a unified world on sin, guilt, judgment, and death? Because everyone's worried. I'm going to go to hell. If I do this, God's not going to love me anymore. You know, I can't talk to you because you know you're you know Jewish or you're you're Muslim. I didn't even know you existed. You know, because I never I left my church. You know, anything else existed outside my little. So the whole thing has been so unhealthy. But here's the good news: all of that just was this morning. In an evolutionary universe, we act as if it's all over. We are just at the beginning. We're just at the beginning of this religious dimension that is now increasing in a whole new way with a whole new consciousness. Why do we live and act as if God was born, you know, 2,000 years ago, and now we've all gone down the wrong pike, and now it's all going to come to the apocalypse, and we're all going to blow up into something? And I really think God must look and say. They, what what were these people eating for this morning? You know, what are they? What's in their water? You know, because I mean, it's about life. You don't. I mean, every religious tradition will tell you to life. God is the shorthand term for life, and so we got what we lost with the angry, vindictive God was life, and I think we have been dealing with a kind of death, kind of. Religious mentality for a long time. Well, not so long, but pretty long. Well, some of us who embrace what you say and want an um, era of divine diversity. Um, I think we need a divine coming out party. Coming out party. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still in the church. It's true. Yeah, <laughs> they haven't thrown me out yet, but. Because people who, I mean, the way I frame it is that it, it, there are people who tell us that they believe the right things, according to the church, and they're still jerks. And, um, well, jerks because if you live your life within two centimeters, right, life, look at nature, the beauty of nature in its full flowering. So before we're done here tonight, I don't know if people have got questions, but I would like to hear you talk about what is a hot topic out there, and that's AI, artificial intelligence. What's coming? <laughs> well, should I we be afraid? I think we should be. I think we should be very aware of what what the possibilities are. Um, now, a true AI transhumanist, what, transhumanism is the cultural philosophical movement that emerged in the, in the 90s in, in Oxford, but has really now spread throughout you know, the globe, I would say. And um, what transhumanists propose is that technology will lead us into a better humanity. So the logo is H+. But underneath that, and there's been a lot of scholarship on this, is that um, 
Transhumanists feel that re religion, especially Western religion, has been a failure. Um, you know, uh, the principles of salvation and immortality, you know, that we're supposed to create a world, uh, uh, you know, a new world of justice and peace. I mean, it's never been more divided and more violent, you know, than now. So transhumanists say, but we can create a better world. We can, uh, for example, we can, you know, implant chips eventually that will enhance our memory. Uh, we will, uh, transhumanists will believe in psychopharmacology, they'll believe in cryonics, you know, if you, we'll be able to preserve our life. Uh, I don't know if you want to live forever and ever, but, you know, hang in there because we'll be able to download your brain, like the movie Transcendent, you know, or if you've seen Advantageous, you know, the movie, like, download your brain, repackage you in a new medium, good to go, you know. Um, I do think it's just amazing in terms of what's, Technology is evolving us exponentially. There's no doubt about it. I mean, our, um, our, our computer technology is just rapidly increasing every two years. Uh, the chips are getting smaller. Chips are even themselves going to become obsolete. You know, we have different forms of computing power. We're moving into um, quantum computing. So the amount of information uh, is quadrupling. It will quadruple. The problem is we're becoming, our brains are not hardwired for all the information. So this is one problem. So on one hand, technology is a real plus for us. On the other hand, it's actually going to be diminishing us unless we prioritize technology towards um, higher values. Uh, and the thing is, I mean, if you've read Nicholas Carr's books, The Shallows or The Glass Cage, um, we're, our brains are changing. Literally, they're changing because the brain is a very plastic organ. So you know, if you're constantly exporting your memory onto a device, the memory capacity of the brain <clears throat> will thin out. Same thing in terms of our emotional life. You know, if most of our emotional life is lived in virtual reality, we're not going to deal well, you know, in, in real time, um, you know, where there's suffering. Um, uh, a lot of, uh, I think, thinking is becoming, becoming a thing of the past, you know, because we don't think. And by thinking, I mean that solitary, contemplative engagement of our encounter with uh, experiences of reality, where we take them in. And so I, I wonder about our creativity for the future in terms of technology. Technology so, is making us more isolated. It definitely, there's definitely studies that we are lonelier and more isolated today with technology than ever before. And so, while on one hand it's fantastic, and on the other hand it's been an unbridled, exponential development of the stuff, and we have no ethics, we have no policies, we have no, in a sense, priorities of how to incorporate technology, we don't even know what we want as human persons. And I think part of it is we want to get out of the human dilemma of uh, animosity, opposition, violence, and we want a better world, and we think technology will bring us there. And I, I have some doubts about that. So the, the violence and the destruction we see in the world, that's a projection of our inner well-being or lack of it? The violence, the violence and in the world, <clears throat> again, that's a complex question. I do think we are in, I think one thing technology has done for us, it has, it has evolved us. It, by evolve, I mean it has raised our level of consciousness to a new level of global consciousness. Uh, we are much more aware today of religious, ethnic, cultural pluralities than ever before in the history of the universe.
but we don't, we don't know how to deal with the new realities. And so there's a lot of, I think, resistance, there's opposition to evolution itself. Uh, and so I think the violence, I also think because we have no narrative that binds us together, we fear what the future may mean for us together in a new way. And so I do think that there's opposition to that. So we need a new narrative. <coughs> we need a new narrative. Where are we going to get it? Well, if you hang around here for a while, I can give you one. No. Um, <coughs> um, you know, this is our postmodern dilemma, right? There are many narratives. But the fact is, uh, I teach undergraduates, and the truth is, we, there are some things that bind us together. I think, for example, uh, our concern for a sustainable environment is becoming an increasingly common uh, binding thread among us. Uh, I do think that there's, I'm sure, you know, when you experienced those horrific floods, you know, last summer, there seemed to be an outpour of compassion, you know, that, again, so there's, the human heart is one. I, I think the human heart does not know religion, race, language, or ethnicity. It knows love, it knows compassion, and it knows how to care for another. And I think if we can meet one another on a new level of what binds us together, what draws together the human heart into a new unity, I do think there's the possibility of a new future up ahead together. I think young people are there. Quite, I mean, I see a lot of my undergraduates very concerned for the poor, uh, for the uh, immigrants, for uh, a green earth. So. I think sometimes part of the problem is older folks, like, you know, in my generation, who have straddled um, between old paradigms of religion and old cosmologies and this new world. But I, I see a lot of hope, tr truthfully, in the younger generations. And the importance of an inner life. Talk about that. Ah, the inner life. Well, you know, I have a new book coming out if you want to support the cause. Um, <coughs> it's called A Hunger for Wholeness on Soul, Space, and Transcendence. And this is really Tara Desjardins' um, insight that matter, he says, has an inside to it, uh, which he began to call consciousness, the transcendent dimension of matter. And he says there's an outer, there's an outer life of matter that he called the level of attraction, which he named love. And so I take that level of consciousness and love as that twofold energy of inwardness and outwardness. And I think, I think we have, in the last few hundred years, we have lived an outward-looking life. And I think we have neglected the inner, the inner level of conscious wholeness or conscious unity, what, what the ancients would call the place of the heart. Uh, and that, what we're beginning to see is the inner life, consciousness, drives the outer life. And that's why I think we're a little bit scattered all over the place because we haven't unified the inner life of consciousness and the outer life of love or what draws us. So I, I want to say this, it's a reclaim of the soul, but I don't take soul like Aristotle thought that there's something in us, you know, that's separate and distinct uh, from the body. I take soul as the core constitutive beingness of every single being. Uh, that, that's unclonable, you know, um, irrepeatable, uh, that is the core of our personality and that will endure forever because it endures in and through our relationality. 
You know, you quoted Meister Eckhart. One of my favorite lines by him is, the eye with which God sees me is the same yes, eye with exactly. which I see I love God. That. And the, the eye with which I see you is the same. Yes. That we can begin to understand that though we're not each other, we're not separate from each other. Right. And yet we live in such a divided, divisive world. It's true, but I think we have to, I think we need to just give ourselves a little bit of credit to, to realize that while we do live in an undivided, a divided world, we also live in an unfinished universe. So it is not finished. You know, we can't just say, this is it. You know, we're divided, it's never going to get better. And I'm saying, we're all works in progress. Do we realize that we are not just created? We are being created. We are becoming something. And I think we need to enfold the language of becoming into our thinking. We think in static terms, and we need to begin to think in the dynamic terms of future becoming. And so it's not like, oh, it's all over. You know, look, we just can't, we can't find a common ground. I don't like you, you don't like me. Rather than what are we becoming not just what is, but what are we becoming, and can we become together something new? Uh, and so, so I, I see the problems of the world clearly, but I also see what draws people, say, to something more than themselves. And here I would take, take the Olympics. <clears throat> you know, people come from all over. Here we have North Korea and South Korea, and yet, thanks be to God, they were able to walk in together. There is always the hope that something more will draw us on to something more unified. Um, I take sports, of course, I'm from Philadelphia now, so I, I had to watch the Eagles game. And, oh my God, it was, a, it was a religion in itself. It didn't matter what you believe in, right? It was church writ large. So, you know, Karl Rahner, the great theologian Karl Rahner said, we are all immersed in a horizon of infinite divine love. And this, this horizon of the infinite is constantly drawing us. So whether or not we're aware of the divine horizon of our lives, that's another story. But that it's present is, is writ all over the place. It's what keeps us searching, moving, coming together. You know, even if we don't agree with one another politically or economically, we are something more binds us. And music festivals and sports usually bring that out. <laughs> I think Ronner was also the one who said that in the future, uh, we, Christians would become mystics so there would be no Christianity at all. I think that's exactly right. I do think the mystical, the myst, in other words, rather than using things that constantly, like we're never gonna come to, my creed is better than, you know, we have the true creed or we have the real religion, you don't have the real religion. You know, how are we ever gonna get beyond that impasse? You know, because we have, well, who, what's true? How do we know something is true, right? Because someone told me, because God came down and said, this is true, or is truth that which deepens and co-inheres life into something more unified, more radiant, more life-giving, Truth is where there's a transparency between what is and what flows in that isness. And I think that our notion of truth needs to change. You know, we're into the patriarchal ideological battles of intellectual arguments. 
That ain't gonna go, did you ever get two intellectuals in a room and try to get uh, you know, something on a common page? Forget it. I mean, give it up, right? But get them in a room you know, and talk about, for example, their children who are suffering with a cold or a flu. You know, they may not agree on the same formulas, but they are together on the one page. So we, the truth is, it's what, what we suffer together in our fragile, unfinished humanities. This is what binds us together, you know, and this is where we must meet on the level of truth and love. I think some of us um, who lived through the 60s, who saw the big shift, um, turned to Eastern religions. And that gets to a question that somebody said, these ideas may sound radical to us as Western Christians, but isn't this what you've been talking about, what Eastern religions have felt, known, and taught for thousands of years? Absolutely, and I think one of the greatest tragedies is where the West cut itself off from the East. It's almost like we, we really cut half of our brain out. We cut half of our heart out. The Eastern religions have been, I think, um, you know, very attuned to the cosmic wholeness, to the energies, you know, the flow of energies in, in the universe way before, the, you know, Westerners, oh, look what we discovered, you know. Um, uh, absolutely, and I think this is, a, and I'm, uh, delighted, first of all, thank God for evolution in the 60s, you know, that the East was brought back into the West. We, we must, we, we need, we need East and West, we need yin and yang, we need the Tai Chi, right? We need that wholeness of energies in love. Anytime we cut ourselves off and say, this is it, we've got it, you know, you can rest assured, you don't have it. <laughs> There is something essentially narcissistic about humans thinking that we're made in God's image and nothing else is. Oh yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, right, so it's like... I thought so. You know, it's like, it's like God saying, oh well, you know, I guess I'll throw some dirt and rocks out there so they have something to walk on. I mean, seriously, what kind of God do we think this is? I mean, so first of all, God, when we say God is love, this is not like human love. This is an eternal, absolute love. I think God loves every single quark. You're like, what, God loves a quark? Yes, absolutely. A quark, an atom, a cell, everything. Bonaventure would say everything that exists bears a reflection of divine love. Everything from the smallest to the blade of grass, to the, to the leaf, so everything is imbued with that divine love. And if we really lived that, we would not have half of the environmental problems we have today. But we have grown up with a Western mentality that it's all Cartesian, it's a, it's a Cartesian world, and matter is inert stuff. You just do with it what you want. In the same way that we might treat our bodies as just inert stuff, we could do with it what we want. It's not. Matter is sacred. We are matter. We're not, you know, we're not spiritual beings. We are material beings, you know, that express themselves in spiritual ways. So, yeah. So, what is the role of the spiritual leader in today's local community? The spiritual leader, I think, that's a good question. I think, first of all, we think we need leaders with imagination. We've, we need leaders who are willing to trust and to risk um, bringing, I think, communities into a new vision. You know, and I think part of that is empowering people with a new sense 
of the divine in their own life. You know, before when I was growing up, it's like father knows best, you know. Um, and, and so, of course, as a woman in the church, it's definitely father definitely knows best. So, you know, and we, we were in the Catholic church, you know, we never even read scripture until 1943. We were like, oh, there's a thing called the Bible, really? I thought it was just the Pope. So we didn't know that, you know, that there's this word of God. So I think, I think leaders, um, I think leaders need to provide a vision. They need to provide, um, help people form new narratives, but they also need to empower the faithful. We need to take responsibility for, our spirit, for the spiritual dimension of our lives. You know, these are not givens. I always say it's so amazing that we train ourselves athletically, you know. I mean, we will run, get up in the morning, we'll be on the treadmill. Why don't we train our souls? Why don't we train the spiritual dimension of our lives in the same way we, tra we train our bodies? I've never been able to figure that one out. Somehow we're supposed to get to this better world, which is really all about spirit and energy, and it's just supposed to happen. When we're so flabby in that area, you know? <laughs> So how can you have a flabby soul in a better world? I don't know, I haven't figured that out. So one, one of the things that I think people who come to hear me get irritated with in my teaching is that I rant, actually I rant, about the importance of people having a spiritual practice, a daily spiritual practice. And yet there's so much resistance to that, to what you were just talking about. It's like, oh, I don't have time, you know, I'm very busy. Uh, well, you have time to go to the gym, right? So don't you have time just to sit in silence, you know, and just to focus on the core of your life where that divine dwells? Prayer, I mean, it could be prayer. This, I have to say, I, I, I admire the, the Islamic practice of prayer. You know, it's very disciplined. I mean, but there's a conscious calling to mind that you know, God is at the heart, Allah is at the heart. So what suggestions do you, uh, given your point of view about the sacred, make to people about conceptualizing God? I think God is always that which is at the core of our being. So there's no <laughs> one conceptual, you know, I mean this here, as I was looking at these Rothko uh, art pieces, you know, this in some ways speaks of the infinite, you know, the God who dwells in darkness, the God, the hidden God, you know? And so I think you find the images, you find the language that, that expresses, you know, that, that inner depth. And I think, first of all, it's becoming attentive to the fact that we have an inner depth, you know? If we are constantly pulled outside ourselves by the busyness of our lives, you know, and we, we do this to ourselves, right? You know, I have, I have three hours, you know, and I have half hour here, I have a meeting here, I have a coffee here, I have lunch here. And we're like, bum, 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 bum. By the time we go home, we're exhausted, right? So I think what if we began with a consciousness of, of divinity at the heart of my being itself? Like, are we even, when we get up in the morning, what's our first thought? That's our question. Is it like, oh God, I have to go to work, or oh God, there's traffic today, or oh, it's raining outside, oh, oh God, I have class, you know? Or do we say, thank you. Thank you, divine love. Thank you, beloved one, for this gift of life. Thank you for this breath. Thank you for these eyes. Thank you for these ears, for these hands. 
ingratitude. You know, the word for thinking in German is Gedanken, but it's very close to Gedenken. Thinking is thinking. And I think we have become a thoughtless people. We're so information-driven and overloaded, we're not thankful, nor are we thoughtful. And so we have very thinned out lives. We're like, a, we're like an egg that's been splattered all over the pan, and we can't gather into a yolk. And so uh, I just think you don't have to spend a lot of time. Prayer is about a consciousness of, an, of a beloved, an other, at the heart of our lives, and to awakening to that. So you're quoted in a book that I'm currently reading as saying, quote, the evolution is the story, the meta-narrative of our age, when the mind can engage reality as a question, rather than imposing prefabricated answers on it, then one can participate creatively. In Did evolution. I say that? That's you said amazing. that. <laughs> yes, I think, I think we have lost to the, here's where I have to say, I actually love the ancient philosophers uh, because they literally encountered being. They encountered life. And so I think the modern person has become something of a reactionary to life. You know, we simply, we don't respond to the question of life. We're simply reacting to the existential, we're like, we're like always in a series of little bonfires, and our whole task is to put out the fire so we don't get engulfed by it. Um, and yet, I think what we are saying, so that, that goes back to being thoughtful and thankful, you know? I think what we are saying is we need to first slow down. There is nothing that we're doing that we couldn't do at a slightly slower pace. I mean, we're not getting anywhere better. I mean, it's not getting better. It's not getting any more unified. It's not getting any more peaceful. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's getting less peaceful, and it's becoming more warm globally. And so I think the first thing is to slow down, and I don't even think we can take that risk. I think we don't even know what that means for us. What does it mean to slow down? You know, could we even take maybe five more breaths in the morning? You know, even if we just got up and stood still for five minutes, maybe even 10 seconds, depending on things. So all I'm saying is, if we begin to slow down and become attentive to what is at the heart of our life, to what is drawing me, that's the infinite horizon question. What is drawing me this day? Do I find myself scattered across many terrains? Or do I feel a pull towards something in particular? Then we begin to, you know, I think of um, Bernard Lonergan, the great uh, Canadian theologian, who said, be attentive. We're, we're, we are, we have like kind of a, a global attention deficit syndrome, you know? No one's attentive. I mean, did you ever go to a supermarket or, you know, everyone's like, preoccupied, they're on their little glass cages, and they're all like pushing one another aside, you know. It's like, I got here first, you know. It's like, oh, okay, you know, uh, give me the fast checkout. I need to check out. I don't want to wait in line. We hate to wait. We're so impatient. You know, we're inattentive. And so Lonergan's saying, we, we'll never be part of what's unfolding. 
the, the persons who are unfolding us right now are in California. That would be Google <laughs> and Microsoft in, in Washington because they have a lot of time. They do a lot of playtime there. Um, we need to play more. You know, we need to slow down and enjoy life. We're not enjoying life. We're, we're barely getting through it. You know, we're, it, it, like every day it's a survival mode. It's like, yay, I made it through another day. Uh, wow, congratulations. <laughs> you know, uh, we have forgotten what it's like just to enjoy one another's company, to laugh, you know, just humor, um, to enjoy the beauty of a sunset or the beauty of a tree. We don't even, you know, you can go, there was a tree there? When did that, when, when did that tree show up? It's been there all along. Mm -hmm. So we're losing the sense of wonder, you know. To wonder is to wander, you know. You let yourself flow in this flow of life. So we can be part. Here's the thing. It's thinking that is creative. Teilhard said that in thinking, we form new wholes, new unities, and we can become artisans of the world unfolding. But if we don't think and think and unify, then we are then condoners of what is not evolving but devolving. The opposite of evolution is devolution. It's the thinning out and the fragmentation of life. And we have to choose what side we want to be, well, we will be on, because we're on one side or the other. There is no in-between. I'm in some safe zone. <coughs> you're either thinning out life or you're helping to unify it. And so I think if we help unify it, we are evolvers. We're co-creators. We create the world as we make our choices and our decisions. So here's a, here's a personal question. Oh. We were talking about this earlier that um, there was a poll taken <clears throat> some years ago about asking people in all 50 states, what's the first word that comes to mind when you hear the word Christian? And the top responses were hypocritical, judgmental, and anti-gay, which clearly means that a lot of organized religion is not doing a good job. There are a lot of people who want to be within a church and they're there because it's their tradition, they like the ritual, They like a variety of other things, and yet sometimes the policies of the church are so negative and exclusionary. So somebody has asked, uh, gender equality brings us together, so how can you be part of a Catholic church that won't allow women priests? I don't wanna say I'm forming my own, but you know, um, I am. <laughs> I guess because I don't equate uh, my, my, my commitment to the gospel life, uh, to Christ, and to, to my understanding of God with the institution of the church per se, and I've been with the institution for quite a long time. I hate to say this, not that I don't pay attention to it, I do pay attention, but I just don't allow it to, because what I think is that I believe in transformation. I think given sufficient amount of time, uh, given the right milieu, I think the church can be transformed within, and if it can't be transformed, it will itself converge into something new. So if, even if I were to leave Catholicism today and I become Episcopalian tomorrow, I don't think Episcopalians are, you know, they have their own problems, you know. So I guess, I guess what I am saying is, I really think that in an evolutionary world, where we are on the level of conscious religion, 
is really at the beginning of things. I think we're moving towards something. And I think we're very impatient people. We want it tomorrow. We want all our problems solved. We want gender equality. We want a new pope. We want shared leadership. Uh, stick around for about a thousand years because it's going to happen, it, it probably in le or less in time. Um, but something, it's not going to stay this way. That's what I'm saying. Uh, we can keep working toward gender equality. I would love to see women priests. I don't think that would solve the problems of the church, I have to be quite honest. Those problems are deep, 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 and they're philosophical problems. So we can have women, that'd be great. But um, I think we are, I don't think that's the answer, actually. I don't even think gender's the thing. I mean, if you look at where we are in technology today, I think we're moving beyond even ontological gender distinctions between male and female. I mean, you, you know that we're in, there's agendering, there's, you know, polygendering. So the whole notion of gender is changing. Now that, that, now that you were know, like, what? You know, um, but yeah, so here's what we are saying. <laughs> Let me just back up and say this. Nature, what we're learning from science is nature is very malleable. Nature goes with the flow. Nature changes, right? Part of our religious problem is we think in terms of fixed essences or fixed nature, thanks to Aristotle. But I want to tell you this. Aristotle is dead. <laughs> he has been dead for all, quite a long time. But we haven't yet really fully acknowledged the funeral. We live in a world that is driven by energy, and energy cannot be fixed. There are no fixed essences. Given enough time and the right circumstances and the right environment, life forms will change. And you can rest assured that we are going to change. We will not be the same species in the next 100, 500 years for sure. We will become something different, something new. That's not the question. The question is, what will we become? That's our problem today. That's our decision. This is where we become co-creative of what that future becoming is. So I find these questions of religion, they're nice, they're good, but they're a little bit yesterday. I mean, you're not going to solve the problems of gender tomorrow. Uh, we're not even going to, we can keep working towards justice. Absolutely. But you have to keep that question of justice within the framework of an open, unfinished universe. I think we quickly move from an open, unfinished universe to a closed, fixed universe. And this is our problem. We keep vacillating between these two paradigms. And I think it's time for us to get over the fact it's not a closed, fixed universe. It's open, it's unfolding, and we are part of this unfolding. And we need to think in terms of not just what is, but what is on the horizon. And that's where our soul life, our spiritual life, and our personal lives do make a difference. Thank you. All right. <laughs> For those of you who don't know about Ilya's work, um, 17 books, I think. One, one of the books that I would recommend is your book on 10 Evenings with God. Oh, yeah. That's a wonderful book. Oh, good. And so if anybody is looking to deepen their inner life, that would be a place to start. I get a percentage of the royalties that are... That would be $1.99. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> oh, great. I think this, uh, this crowd is encouraging for the kind of thing that you are talking about. I hope so. Chisley, I, uh, I have a, you know, people say to me, you're such an optimist. I see the realities of the world. I've lived through my own struggles. Um, I see the violence, I see the hatred, I see the oppositions, and yet I see a lot of good. There is a tremendous good in our midst, and we do not sufficiently own the good that is within each of us. Uh, that good is that the divine depth of love. You know, you may name it God, you may name it Allah, you may name it, you know, Adonai, whatever name you give to the divine. That ground of love, it's a wellspring of love, and it keeps wanting to come up in and through our lives. I, I am really, I know that we have the capacity for a different world. I am almost sure of it. But we need to imagine what kind of world do we want. And we haven't given sufficient imagination, artistically, musically, intellectually, to that, the world up ahead. I think it's time that we move beyond the problem-solving world, uh, the immediate, the expedient world of problems, and at least fold into that world uh, the creative imagination. Basically, we've become very good left-brain people. We need now the right brain awakened. You know, we need to connect the right brain with the body, with the world itself. Because you know that whatever our choices are for our lives is the whole universe itself. You know, St. Paul writes in Romans, the whole creation cries out. The whole universe is groaning aloud for its fulfillment. And I think we're so unconscious that our lives are intertwined with nature itself, that the flowers and the trees and the skies and the wind is crying out for a, a, a greater fulfillment and can only find that fulfillment, you might say, in the ones who are conscious, um, you know, beings making choices for where we're going uh, together. So I, I just want to encourage you, whatever, you know, the difficulties are at the moment, I'm not saying, you know, erase them or like make believe they don't exist. They do exist, but truthfully, suffering is a gift. When did suffering never become a gift? There is no way to grow in love without suffering. If we did not suffer, we would never know the depths of love. And so accept that suffering as part of the grow growing in unity in love and just learn to suffer together in a way in which the good in one another can really shine through. So I want to thank you for sharing your brilliance with us, but more than that, <laughs> You are an embodiment of what you talk about. <laughs> you have a wonderful light heart. Thank you very much. Thanks, Phil. Thank you. I want to thank you all both for your engaging conversation, your evocative and provocative words, but I'm stuck on one thing, sister. Oh, okay. It's that Sicilian deal. What a great talk. <laughs> but really, it was really great. And um, I, I think, you, you know, I think what you brought to us tonight is that fact that we so often feel like we are on that treadmill. 
And that little basic thing of just slowing down, turning off, and tuning out in a different kind of way, in a good way, uh, is so important. And I think that's what the chapel is about. And what I'd like to do in closing is another kind of welcome to you, is to come back. If you've, especially those that are here for the first time, come back during the day, take a break from work. Come downtown, come to this part of the community and just sit here. It's, uh, when you come in on a normal day, there's about eight benches right in the middle to just come and sit. There are prayer cushions to just come and sit. Uh, it's not an act of solitude because you'll be with other people that are doing something. And I think what you both remind us, the power of community. Uh, so it's not about loneliness. It's not about, it's about a solitude that's practiced with others and in that's community. So I invite you to come back. I also invite you to take a look at the back of your program because it has upcoming programs. I hope you'll come to that and check our website. I also hope that you will just take one minute and just sit for a second so we can get Ilya and we can get Bill outside because there's a lot of you here. So we can get them out and then you can visit out in the plaza. And I would ask that you would exit from the center rows. Uh, just be careful with the artwork. It just helps with the exiting. And uh, we hope to see you back in the near future. And thank you very much for being here tonight. Safe travels. <laughs>